Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Did you know? The audio designers for the 2016 reboot of Doom went to insane lengths while crafting the sounds of the game. The effect for the glory kill of the Mancubus was made by slathering a steak with honey, stuffing it into a Vuvuzela, and then blowing it into a vat of cold soup. And the theme music from the main menu features the sound of a chainsaw run through a synthesizer as the lead instrument. The heavy and aggressive synth sounds used throughout the Doom soundtrack come from a rare Soviet-era synthesizer called Apollovox. Doom composer Mick Gordon also ran audio through vast arrays of old guitar pedals, mixers, and other analog recording equipment, giving the music a gritty and industrial sound. Many songs from the Doom reboot also reference previous games in the series. The track Ties That Bind has a musical allusion to the Imps song from the original Doom. To make the reference authentic, Mick Gordon tracked down an old Sound Blaster PC card to sample the exact MIDI sounds from the original game. Doom 3's music is also referenced in the reboot soundtrack. The track Harbinger uses a similar guitar riff as the main theme of Doom 3. The most bizarre secrets within Doom 2016's soundtrack can only be found by running the music through a visual spectrograph. The opening to a track known as Cyberdemon contains satanic imagery depicting pentagrams and the number 666. There's another song with hidden spectrographic visuals. The ending to the song Skull Hacker depicts the sprite of John Romero's head on a spike from Doom 2. The theme for the evil scientist Olivia Pierce was inspired by the classic Doom track, Suspense. It was one of Mick Gordon's favorite songs from the original Doom, and he felt the dark tone captured her evil characteristics. Olivia Pierce was modeled after the actress Tilda Swinton, and was specifically influenced by her role as Karen Crowder in the 2007 film Michael Clayton. According to creative director Hugo Martin, the film's style of indirect storytelling was also an influence for Doom 2016. While developing the narrative of the game, lead designers Hugo Martin and Marty Stratton had long discussions breaking down films and trying to find what made them great. Another movie they found inspiration from was the 1991 action film The Last Boy Scout. Hugo Martin explained in an interview with Noclip that it was one of his favorite movies and he loved its self-aware humor. After several failed attempts at writing a serious story for a discontinued Doom 4 project, the team felt that Last Boy Scout's self-aware tone was a better fit for Doom. The opening sequence of Doom was inspired by the surgery scene from Robocop. The team studied the scene closely and wanted to emulate the moments that showed the audience how powerful Robocop is going to be. Id Software designed a few very different opening cinematics before settling on a final version. Some early versions of the opening featured drawn-out tutorials and a segment where Olivia paced, lecturing the Doom Marine as he was strapped to a chair. The team found that these story elements interrupted the flow of gameplay and didn't set the right tone. This frustration manifested in the story segment where the Doom Marine throws a screen as a mission brief plays. It was deliberately added as a statement on the importance of narrative in the fast action game. Hugo Martin stated, we're gonna set the tone for the whole game. It's an action-first game. The beginning has to be action. We know this is ridiculous. You know this is ridiculous. Good. Can we just shake hands on this and have fun? Including the scrapped concepts for Doom 4, Doom 2016 was technically in development for eight years. One of the developers even had four children in the time it took to release the game. When the founder of id Software, John Carmack, left the company, it was enormously disruptive. The decision caused a legal battle between Carmack and id Software's parent company, Zenimax. The reason for the split came from creative differences. Carmack wanted to focus more effort on the then-unproven virtual reality systems, but Zenimax wouldn't allow Carmack to work on VR projects while under contract. So when the contract 
expired, Carmack decided not to renew and went to work on the Oculus Rift as technology chief. Its software underwent a complete reshuffling of talent and brought in new hires for leading roles. After rebooting the project into what it's known as today, the developers came up with a concept called the DNA of Doom. Getting away from the Doom 4 premise, the game was to return to its roots, with no scripted events, no cover, no reloading, and movement as a defense. Level designer Jason O'Connell was a huge Doom fan growing up and had the original game running when he would design levels. Its software built the game around the concept of push-forward combat. The idea was inspired by the Glory Kill system and how it incentivizes players to keep moving with health and ammo. Hugo Martin compared the gameplay style to Bloodborne, which was popular around the id Software office when it came out. The game's finalized story was one of the last pieces to fall into place. When asked how far along in development the story was finished, Hugo Martin refused to answer, stating, it would make us sound irresponsible if I told you how much time was left. Doom 2016 has a series of secrets and easter eggs that reference past id Software and Bethesda games. The very first level has a reference to Fallout, with a Vault Tech logo in the lower left corner of a doorway. A reference to Commander Keen can be found in Hell, where a small cave contains a skull on a stake, wearing Keen's signature yellow helmet. The Dope Fish from Commander Keen Goodbye Galaxy can also be found in the logo of Cup Ramen, scattered about on computer desks on the Mars base. An easter egg referencing Skyrim can also be found in a secluded cave in Hell. The cave contains a secret lever, and a corpse wearing the iconic iron helmet from Skyrim with an arrow sticking out of its knee. The Super Turbo Turkey Puncher 3 arcade machine from Doom 3 makes a return in the Doom reboot, located on the Mars base behind a stack of large cargo boxes. The reboot contains tons of references to the original 1993 Doom, but the most interesting of all is part of a death animation. If the player is destroyed by an explosion in the secret throwback areas, the pixelated face of Doom guy is clearly visible behind the visor. Did you know? The Sims, one of the best-selling PC games of all time, originally started out as a personal side project of SimCity creator Will Wright and was almost never published. After spending time at home with his newborn daughter, Will Wright began to develop a concept for a game designed to simulate the behavior of a modern human family. When the idea was finally pitched to the higher-ups at Maxis, they hated it. Board director Jeff Braun said, The board looked at The Sims and said, What is this? He wants to do an interactive dollhouse? The guy is out of his mind. It was seen as a major gamble, and people thought the game had no audience in the video game market. But after the success of SimCity 3000, Wright pushed again to get The Sims published, and finally, the idea was approved. The Sims was released for PC in February of 2000 and shortly became the best-selling PC game of all time. It stayed at the top of the bestsellers list for four and a half years up until the release of The Sims 2. The Sims 2 sold around 20 million copies, outselling the original by 4 million. It is said that the idea for certain mechanics in The Sims came to creator Will Wright after he lost his home to a fire. Wright said that the experience forced him to look at his home from a different perspective. He began to think about rebuilding his house from scratch and about rebuying the different objects that had decorated the inside. The experience directly inspired his idea for a game in which players build spaces and simulate the lives of the people who inhabit it. In fact, the game started out solely as an architecture simulation game, and The Sims were only there to evaluate your creations. It was later decided that the Sim characters themselves were more interesting than the developers had anticipated, and their role in the game was expanded upon. Many of the wants and needs of the characters within the game were developed after analyzing behavioral studies of real-world humans. The Sims even use a fictional language called Simlish, which is based on real-world languages. During development, Will Wright felt the characters needed voices to express emotion and connect with the player, but it was thought that real languages would sound too repetitive and would be too costly to translate. So, the development team started working on a fake written language by combining the alphabet and visual structure of over eight different world languages. The spoken version of Simlish is just gibberish which was improvised during recording. In fact, the developers specifically hired actors that were good at making up gibberish sounds during auditions. Not long after the release of The Sims 2, U.S. anti-video game activist Jack Thompson alleged that the game exposed explicit and adult-related content to children. Thompson claimed that the game featured detailed nudity behind the censored blur that shows up on Sims when they use a shower or toilet. Electronic Arts executive Jeff Brown adamantly stood by the game's rating and outright rejected the claim. He said that it was impossible to remove the blur, and even if the player did remove it, the anatomy of a Sim was that of a doll rather 
other than a naked human. Though it is true that The Sims appear to have no sexually explicit anatomy, it isn't true that it's impossible to remove the blur. The original release of The Sims 2 featured a simple command line cheat code that would disable the censorship blur. It's likely that Jeff Brown was unfamiliar with the cheat code, however the expansion pack The Sims 2 University, which was released shortly after the uproar, came with a patch that disabled the cheat code. It was later revealed by EA that the removal of this code was in fact related to the blur bar controversy. Weather was also planned to be a feature in the original Sims 2 release. An early trailer shows a female Sim in a hot tub who gets struck by lightning during a rainstorm. However, rain cannot be found in The Sims 2. Weather effects weren't added to the series until five years after the trailer, with the release of The Sims 2 Seasons. According to some dedicated The Sims fan sites, almost all of the game's development data was lost in an office server room fire. The fire resulted in most of the game having to be remade again from scratch. This is also said to be the reason why many graphical elements in The Sims 2 beta looked better than they did in the final release. The developers were pressed for time and had to remake a lot of the content in a hurry. An early trailer for The Sims 2 also features three vehicles lined up side by side, one of which is a bright yellow sports car. Vehicles were only made drivable by playable Sims for the first time with the release of The Sims 2 Nightlife. Even though the cars shown in the trailer were not drivable, every car made an appearance in the game as carpools that were driven by non-playable characters. That is, except for the yellow sports car. It wasn't until The Sims 2 Nightlife came out that the yellow sports car was seen again, available for players to purchase. This may be due to what many have speculated, that drivable cars were supposed to appear in the original release of The Sims 2, but were removed. Though the drivable cars being cut is just speculation, it could also link in with the server fire. Throughout the series, The Sims has also had some fairly interesting secrets and easter eggs. When traveling through time in The Sims 3 Ambitions expansion pack, there's a reference to Mass Effect where your sim will accidentally appear in the middle of a crowd cheering about how some kind of shepherd just saved the galaxy from some huge ancient machine god threat. There's also a reference to Red Faction Guerrilla, where your sim stands up for miners' rights on Mars but is then attacked and almost arrested by the Earth Police. There's also a Dragon Age Origins reference when traveling to the past. While traveling through tunnels, your sim can be saved by a warden who leads the sim out safely. The warden is the name for the player-controlled protagonist in Dragon Age Origins. One hot debate in the gaming industry is the argument of what video game came first. There's no simple answer, as the criteria for judging it is constantly changing. However, it is a little easier to answer what the first commercially sold video game was. To find an answer, we'll have to look back to 1979, traveling to the magical land of Finland. Unsurprisingly, the first game sold was a digital version of an already popular existing game, Chess. Chess Mac, created for the Telmac TMC 1800 computer, was a chess sim game by Raimo Suonio. Raimo had a lucky break into the world of commercial releases, taking advantage of his existing job position in a computer store. The store included his game in their catalogue, resulting in a high volume of sales, a staggering 104 copies sold. That may seem small by today's standards, but at the time, this was a substantial number, considering the high barrier to entry for computers and its regional release exclusivity within Finland. It may not be the oldest video game to be created, but it certainly was the first commercially sold title and even back then included its own easter eggs. Within the software are two different versions of John Conway's Game of Life, a simple mathematical visualization that plays out the evolution of a single input based on rules which determine how a cell will change and alter the cells surrounding it. This is defined by four rules dictated by the cell's position around other live or dead cells, which is exactly as exciting as it sounds. From the first commercial PC game to a game that almost certainly should never have been sold, the infamous Big Rigs Over the Road Racing. The game is well known for being largely unfinished and only playable in the strictest technical terms. Some noteworthy issues include no collision detection, the timer being purely for show, and frequent violations of the laws of physics. While reversing, it's possible for the player to reach a displayed speed of over one octillion times the speed of light. For those of you who may not know, one octillion is a one followed by 27 zeros, and there are very few, if any, actual trucks that can go that fast in reverse. Interestingly, for such an unfinished game, the file contains a number of unused vehicles, namely a Ford Explorer 
Expedition, a Toyota Celica, a Hummer H1, and a Nissan 350Z. These vehicles seem to be functional, or at least as functional as the rest of the game, although the Hummer's textures only render the Alpha channel for most of the model. These are likely left over from the sister project, Midnight Race Club Supercharged, not to be confused with Rockstar's Midnight Club series. While both games were released in a pre-alpha state, they were initially a single game before being split into two projects for unknown reasons. Another game with some unusual leftovers is Imagine Engine's 2004 Pokemon Masters Arena. This title is a collection of simple Pokemon-themed minigames published by Valuesoft. As you might expect, it was a low-budget title leveraging the Pokemon license, and by the nature of shovelware development, it's common for these types of games to be simple reskins of other games by the same developer. In this case, the game actually has leftover content from several other games, including graphics and audio from Blue's Clues, Blue Takes You to School, Care Bears Let's Have a Ball, and Jonah A VeggieTales Game. Needless to say, these files go entirely unused in the actual game. Moving on to a series with a far more reliable development team, Black and White was developed by Lionhead Studios and designed by Peter Molyneux. Molyneux is a man who famously never overpromises on his games except for all the times he's done that. The first game in the series introduced an innovative and remarkable mechanic where the player could raise their own creature and manipulate their AI by punishing or praising their behavior. Unfortunately for those digital companions, the game contained a small logical bug where scolding your creature after it defecated would cause it to be permanently constipated. Thankfully, a patch was released which fixed this particular problem, but the sequel, fittingly named Black and White 2, contained an easter egg that may have been more effective at loosening back. Whenever someone dies in the game, a voice can be heard quietly whispering death to notify the player. However, if the game recognizes the name in the game's profile, it will occasionally whisper that instead with no prior warning or explanation. However, on a more solemn note, the game City of Heroes featured an NPC by the name of Matthew Bragg, also known as Coyote, often appearing to give guidance or instruct new players on how to play the game. This NPC was a tribute to the real Matthew Bragg, a regular on the official City of Heroes forums under the name Coyote, prior to the game's release, known for his helpful and friendly nature, particularly towards new members. Sadly, he passed away shortly after the game's release, prompting the developers to memorialize him in their game. However, with the servers shutting down on November 30th, 2012, any official means to access the game, along with this in-game tribute, no longer exists. The fan-favorite post-apocalyptic RPG Fallout New Vegas was unfortunately riddled with many bugs and glitches on release due to a shockingly short 18-month development cycle. The final update for the PC version of the game was released on July 7th of 2011. However, on December 29th of the same year, Josh Sawyer, the game's project director, released a mod for the game, simply known as jsawyer.esp. While not an official update or patch, the mod was intended to bring a number of tweaks and changes to the game that were never implemented prior to release. Some noteworthy changes include a huge difficulty rebalance, making food and water much more rare, lowering the level cap from 50 to 30 35 while also lowering the amount of experience received and reducing carry capacity to just a third of the vanilla game. Along with these more punishing changes, the mod also fixes several bugs and rebalances a number of weapons and armor, as well as removing the need for special training to use the game's iconic power armor. To quote Josh Sawyer himself, this is not official and it's not a patch. If it disintegrates your game, do a Kareem and skyhook the .esp into your recycle bin. Referencing American basketball player Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and his trademark hookshot. Law & Order Double or Nothing is a largely unremarkable 2003 adventure game based on the TV series Law & Order. However, in 2007, four years after its initial release, it was mired in controversy over a complaint about a single image found in the game. The complaint was received from Denise Fergus, and the image in question was taken from CCTV footage recorded in 1993. It shows her son, two-year-old James Bulger, being led out of a shopping center by two ten-year-old boys, Robert Thompson and John Venables, shortly before his murder. Miss Ferguson believes her son's death should not be used for entertainment purposes and that it dehumanizes him by turning what happened into an urban myth. That's a true and very sad story. 
Speaking of crimes in video games, in 2004, New Zealand's Office of Film and Literature Classification, or OFLC for short, concluded a year-long investigation into Running With Scissors' notorious first-person shooter, Postal 2. The report found that the game contained, among other things, the ability to inflict violence or humiliation on other human beings, racist, sexist, and homophobic humor, offensive stereotypes of homosexuals, Asians, Muslims, conservatives, and others, and that the game, quote, promotes and supports the use of urine in association with degrading and dehumanizing conduct. At the conclusion of the investigation, the government body placed a blanket ban on the game, meaning that any individual caught in possession of the game could face up to a year in prison or a fine of approximately 14,000 US dollars. And for retailers or other large distributors, that number could go up to around 38,000 US dollars. Surprisingly, these punishments were comparably lenient, with a 2015 update to their own official guidelines increasing the numbers dramatically to 10 years in prison and fines of either 50,000 or 100,000 US dollars for individuals or distributors, respectively. This ban has never been officially lifted and still stands to this day. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Did you know? Portal is the spiritual successor to a game called Narbacular Drop, an environmental puzzle game developed by Nuclear Monkey Software. The object of the game was to solve puzzles by placing and passing through portals. Valve became interested in Narbacular Drop after seeing the game at the DigiPen Institute of Technology's annual career fair. Valve CEO Gabe Newell swiftly offered the entire team jobs at Valve. The team continued their work, using what they learned making Narbacular Drop to create a new game, Portal. Some smaller details in Narbacular Drop were carried over to the final game, such as the orange and blue color schemes to distinguish between portals. The portals did work differently in each game, however. In Narbacular Drop, you could fire a portal through a portal to reach a new location, something that can't be done in Portal. The team worked with Half-Life series writer Mark Laidlaw to fit the game into the Half-Life universe, which also gave them an excuse to reuse Half-Life 2's art assets and maximize the effort of their small team. The writers came up with the concept of having a computer lead the player through an experimental facility to test the portal gun. This quickly led to ideas for humorous situations and interactions between the player and computer, and the team decided this type of writing would work well in the game. Originally, there were more environmental objects throughout Portal, but they were ultimately stripped away due to playtesters trying to incorporate these objects into puzzles. The objects were distracting, so a largely blank area made it easier to see important objects and let the testers know what they had to work with. There were also plans for office areas to be playable after the test chambers and maintenance areas, but the team was short on time and couldn't include them. The final showdown with GLaDOS was also changed. Chell would originally be chased by lasers, have to redirect rockets while avoiding turret fire, followed by a chase sequence escaping from GLaDOS. The fight was changed based on feedback from playtesters, who preferred a simple puzzle-like boss with a countdown timer. There were also plans to introduce Ratman, an elusive character who leaves messages throughout the maintenance areas, but this idea was cut to keep the storyline simple. Instead, Valve made a comic called Lab Rat that introduced Ratman and connected Portal 1 and 2's stories together. Work on Portal 2 began almost immediately after the release of Portal and was planned to be a standalone product. Valve intended to re-surprise players in Portal 2 by only using all new mechanics. One of these new mechanics was named F-Stop and was the focus of development for five months. F-Stop did get some positive feedback, but every playtester was upset at the lack of portals in the game. 
f-stop was dropped from Portal 2 and put aside for possible use in another game. One of the new mechanics that did make it into Portal 2 were gels. Gels give the surfaces of objects specific properties to help solve puzzles. One of the gels went unused. It allowed Chell to defy gravity and walk on any gel-coated surface. Although it was an interesting mechanic, it gave playtesters motion sickness and was ultimately removed. The game was also planned to have a competitive multiplayer mode. The mode would have been based around one team trying to move a ball from one side of an area to another using portals, while the other team would try to stop them. The matches tended to become hectic during testing, so Valve decided to ditch the mode and focus on the cooperative puzzles instead. The game was also first envisioned as a prequel to Portal set in the 1950s, where Aperture CEO Cave Johnson would lead an army of robots, which would battle against the player to rise to power within the company. Chell was going to be replaced by a new protagonist named Mel. Playtesters were up for the idea of Mel, but became disappointed when GLaDOS didn't recognize them as the player from the previous game. In addition, some of this information was leaked online. After this, and negative playtester feedback about the omission of Chell and GLaDOS, Portal 2 was reconceived as a sequel. Mel was then put into the multiplayer mode before being scrapped entirely and being replaced with Atlas and Peabody. The team returned to the idea of exploring parts of the facility from Aperture's earlier days and reincorporated Johnson through a series of recordings. Two inanimate objects in the original Portal have taken on a life of their own. According to Portal writer Eric Wolpaw, the idea of using the infamous Black Forest Cake as the reward in the game came from a group meeting. At the beginning of the Portal development process, we sat down as a group to decide what philosopher or school of philosophy our game would be based on. That was followed by about 15 minutes of silence, and then someone mentioned that a lot of people like cake. The cake itself is a Black Forest Cake from the nearby Regent Bakery and Cafe in Redmond, Washington, and its recipe is scattered among various screens in the game. The bakery's Black Forest cake has since boosted in popularity thanks to Portal. Another object in the game, the Weighted Companion Cube, came to Wolpaw while he was reading a, quote, declassified government interrogation thing. In this interrogation thing, it showed how isolation led to test subjects becoming attached to inanimate objects. Project lead Kim Swift stated, We had a long level called Box Marathon. We wanted players to bring this box with them from the beginning to the end, but people would forget about the box. So we added dialogue, applied the heart to the cube, and continued to up the ante until people became attached to the box. Later on, we added the incineration idea. The artistic expression grew from the gameplay. Incinerating the weighted companion cube was added as a result of the final boss battle design. Valve recognized they hadn't introduced the idea of incineration in the game, but it was necessary to complete the boss battle with GLaDOS. Incinerating the cube taught the player about the mechanic. Did you know the Spy class in the Team Fortress series is based on a glitch that appeared in the early versions of the original Team Fortress. The glitch would cause players to appear on the wrong team. Because these enemy players appeared to have the same team color as your own, players would often mistake them for teammates. The original Team Fortress was a modified version of the game Quake as well as the later Quake World update. The mod was released in 1996 and was created by a group of Australian college students led by John Cook and Robin Walker. It was a team-based multiplayer first-person shooter with nine different classes to choose from, with game modes changing depending on the map. The developers began working on a standalone sequel to the mod using Quake 2 as a base, which they planned to call Team Fortress 2. Valve Software showed interest in the mod and hired the team to port Team Fortress to Valve's Gold Source Engine as a way of promoting Half-Life 1's software development kit. A port was swiftly made and released with the name Team Fortress Classic. Team Fortress 2, on the other hand, went through multiple delays and design changes until it was released in 2007. When it was first shown at E3 in 1999, Team Fortress 2 looked very different to the game we know today. Unlike the cartoonish mid-20th century industrial art style in the final game, this early version looked to be a more realistic-looking military shooter. This realistic Team Fortress 2 would have featured real-time strategy elements, vehicles, and a class called the Commander. The Commander would have a bird's-eye view of the entire battlefield, be able to look through engineer-built cameras, and see through the eyes of other players. They could provide strategic information for the team, coordinate attacks, 
text alert the team to enemies, place structures, and call for parachute drops over enemy territories. The class was dropped, however, as the developers felt it wouldn't be fun for other players to be commanded what to do. Early versions of Team Fortress 2 also included an officer class that could affect the team's morale and lead a charge. The higher the player's morale, the faster and more accurate they became. However, if an officer died, the player's morale would reset. This morale system was implemented to encourage people to work together as a team. There was also an instructor class that would teach the players how to play the game. Team Fortress 2 was originally titled Valve's Team Fortress and later Team Fortress 2 Brotherhood of Arms. The Brotherhood of Arms subtitle was dropped as was the realistic military theme. The realistic theme was dropped because it was hard to tell the individual classes apart. It was also difficult for players to distinguish character models from parts of the background. Another version of Team Fortress 2 was found to exist after the source tree for Half-Life 2 was leaked in late 2003. Some models were found in the code, a human commando and an alien soldier as well as the game title Invasion. Invasion was the second version of Team Fortress 2 developed and featured a team of humans and a team of aliens pitted against one another competing for resources. According to a Game Informer interview with Robin Walker, at least three to four different versions of Team Fortress were made until the team settled on a final idea. The final version of the game was unveiled at the EA Summer Showcase in July 2006, depicting the game with its near-final visual style. The game's art was inspired by the work of early 20th century American illustrators like Dean Cornwell, J.C. Landecker and Norman Rockwell. There's a large amount of content that wasn't included in the final release of Team Fortress 2. Grenades were originally going to appear as a primary and secondary weapon like in Team Fortress Classic, with each class having their own unique variant with different effects. They were removed because the developers feared players would become dependent on them and spam them. They also feared that players would find exploits using grenades. In addition to the engineers' teleporter, sentry, and dispenser constructions, there was also going to be a repair node building. The repair node could fix any surrounding buildings whilst the engine was absent from the area at the cost of taking the place of one of the existing buildings. It was cut, however, because it would tend to break the flow of gameplay. Not only did it make buildings harder to destroy, but it also disrupted the natural flow of the map by taking place of the teleporters or removing valuable dispenser support from a team. The Heavy's Buffalo Steak Sandwich was originally going to be a peyote cactus, but it was changed at the last minute. This was because playtesters thought punching people in a psychoactive peyote-induced rage while wearing a Native American headdress would be considered considered racist. A non-playable class called the Civilian can be found in the game's files. Its model is the same as the Scouts, and its role would have likely been similar to the Civilian in Team Fortress Classic, a target or an escortee. There are a number of different death screams in the game's files that were to be used for the Civilian. These screams were originally also used for the other playable classes before they were given unique class-specific voices. Two unused models of rideable carts can be found in the game's files that were intended for the payload mode. There are also two unused audio tracks tucked away in the game's files. The first was intended to be included with the Man vs. Machine update. The track is an elevator-style jingle which would have played as the player browses the upgrade station. The second is a MIDI version of the Intruder Alert track. There are tons of references, secrets, and easter eggs found in the game which have been added with various updates. One of the Pyro's taunt kills is called the Hadouken, and is named after the signature move used by Ryu in the Street Fighter series. The proof of purchase helmet given to players prior to the Uber update in 2011 was based on the helmet of the Human Commando from the previous Invasion incarnation of the game. There are a couple of community-created items submitted through the Steam Workshop which have since been officially incorporated into the game. The knife used by the Spy, called Your Eternal Reward, is a reference to a scene in the 1992 Disney film Aladdin. In the scene, Jafar, disguised as an old man, tries to stab Aladdin with a similar-looking knife and says, Your Eternal Reward. The item, Familiar Fez for the Spy, is a reference to the character Mustafa from the first two Austin Power movies. In the second movie, The Spy Who Shagged Me, when Austin encounters Mustafa, he says to him, I don't recall your name, but your Fez is familiar? 
The bow tie item Dr. Woe, which can be used by the Spire medic, is reference to the show Doctor Who, in particular to the 11th incarnation of the Doctor, who was commonly associated with wearing a bow tie. When placing the red tape recorder onto a building, an inaudible sound can be heard. When the sound is slowed down between 70 to 80 percent, it says, when a scout is blown up, there's a 1 in 100 chance that a dove will fly out of his splattered remains. This is a reference to the Meet the Medic video where the medic accidentally seals his pet bird Archimedes inside the scout's chest. Did you know? The Heavy's father was a counter-revolutionary in the USSR. Upon his death, the Heavy and his family were deported to a North Siberian gulag. Roughly 27 years before the events of Team Fortress 2, the prison is burned to the ground three months into the Heavy's stay. Considering he looks to be somewhere in his 40s by now, this implies that an adolescent Heavy took out the entire camp security via torture and freed everyone inside. One of the Heavy's possible secondary weapons is the Dalokos bar. Dalokos spelled backwards is Chocolat, which is Russian for chocolate. The Heavy's gun, Sasha, is the only thing the Heavy appears to care about other than family. In fact, he loves it so much he sleeps beside it. Unlike most of the class-specific TF2 updates, the Soldiers update came alongside the Demo Mans in an update entitled War. The update started with a contest awarding whoever killed more of the opposing class a special new weapon. The War comic accompanying the update explained the Demo Man and Soldier's friendship prior to the event, and sometimes when dominating one another, both classes will voice lines referencing their former friendship. Dominated! But you're still me best mate. Dominated! I'm still your friend. A weapon available to both the Soldier and Demo Man is the half Zatoichi, which has multiple references in its name. Zatoichi is a blind swordsman created for a series of films occurring in late Edo, Japan, relating to the Soldier's vision being permanently obscured by his hat. Also, the Demo Man only has one eye, hence the half in the name. While likely unintentional, the late Edo period is around the 1830s to 1840s, and Team Fortress 2's story begins in 1850. The weapon also has an attribute called Honor Bound, which prevents it from being sheathed until it kills. This is likely a reference to the infamous Muramasa, a Japanese swordsmith whose swords could not be sheathed until they drew blood. The Demo Man, aka Tavish Finnegan de Groot, is bizarrely obsessed with jobs. According to his mother, his father held down 26 jobs at once. She holds this against him as he only has a measly three jobs. In the Bominomicon comic, the Demo Man searches a graveyard for ghosts, hoping they'll give him jobs. He ends up finding one, given by a wizard who warns him not to read the Bominomicon. Being a child, he reads it anyway. And as far as we know, this is actually the story of how he lost his eye. The Demo Man's weapons feature several blatant references to him being Scottish. One of his melee weapons, Nessie's Nine Iron, is a golf club named after the Scottish Loch Ness Monster. Scotland also happens to be where modern golf was invented. One of his alternate grenade launchers is called the Lock and Load, and one of his sticky launchers is called the Scottish Resistance. This refers to the Scottish revolt against English rule in the late 1200s. The Eyelander, Demo Man's default sword, is a reference to the movie Highlander. And lastly, the Scottish handshake is a slang term that references a stereotype of the Scottish people. It implies that they're aggressive, even under agreeable circumstances. The Scout has as much Boston in him as the Demo Man has Scottish. One piece of concept art suggests he could have featured a more blatant visual interest in baseball, complete with a baseball t-shirt and matching red cleats. One of his cosmetic items are red socks, which is a reference to the baseball team of the same name. Once the Scout's update was released, he received a new weapon unlock called the Sandman. The Sandman is a bat and ball combo which, if aimed correctly, can be used to temporarily stun opposing players. The name and its stifling abilities references the Sandman, a mythical character who puts people to sleep by sprinkling sand in their eyes. The Scout's scattergun had unused sound effects for a double-barrel shot. The sound was ultimately repurposed for the Force of Nature weapon instead. One likely joke on the Force of Nature promotional poster is that it was made in Portugal but has good warranty written on it in Spanish, making it look fraudulent. The Engineer is one of the few characters in Team Fortress 2 with a full name, Del Conagher. Conagher happens to be a reference to the old western novel Conagher by Louis L'Amour. This explains the Engineer's relaxed cowboy-like demeanor in his Meet the Engineer trailer. The loose cannon 
comic explains that the engineer's grandfather was integral to TF2's backstory and seemingly senseless conflict. Decades prior, he created a machine that would keep feuding brothers Blue Tark and Redman Man alive forever, more or less. In the present, Blue Tark Man commissioned the engineer to figure out his grandfather's blueprints and make a better machine. The melee weapon, Eureka Effect, is named after a sudden realization or solution to a problem. This is likely because the weapon allows the engineer to teleport to certain locations almost instantly without the need of a teleporter. This effect is similar to that of the Instant Teleporter, a secondary weapon for the engineer which allowed them to instantly teleport to their teleporter exit. It was scrapped during development, however, as engineers were using the teleporter exits for their own needs, breaking the flow of gameplay. The sniper isn't actually Australian. As a baby, he was blasted out of a rocket intended for deep space, only to land in Australia. The rocket was fired by his parents, both of whom were from New Zealand. A uh, New Zealand which voluntarily sunk itself to the bottom of the ocean. One of the sniper's secondary weapons, the Jurati, is never officially referred to as a jar full of urine, although it's heavily implied and the other characters all know what it is. Jurati is actually a shortening of jar-based karate, a crude form of combat invented by CEO of Manco, Saxton Hale. In the Meet the Spy video, the Red Spy attacks the sniper, slashing his cheek before killing him. Upon the release of the Sniper vs. Spy update, the sniper's model was updated to have a scar on his cheek. The spy originates from France, but interestingly, his accent becomes British when the game is played in French. The spy embodies everything international and has a vast variety of stabbing weapons from different locations. His default knife is a butterfly knife or balisong. It's sometimes called a Batangas knife after its place of origin in Batangas, a province of the Philippines. The Conover's kunai represents Japan. Kunais were originally used as a kind of trowel, but were adopted by ninjas to gouge holes in walls, and sometimes people. The Big Earner is based on American Mafia slang for someone who earns a lot of money. And the Wanga Prick references a Wanga, a magical charm used in Haitian folk practice. Originally, Meet the Medic was going to explain how the Medic invented the Metagun. Thanks to an attack by the Blue Spy, the Red Medic noticed a strange reaction when a piece of medical equipment, some jars of health, and a massive pool of blood all fused together. This trailer was laid out more like the previous ones, with the Medic talking at the camera and later narrating his story over the events in question. The final outtake video in this series shows off this alternate approach, and the description reads, We'd made a fundamental error in judgment. Did we explain the birth of the Metagon? Sort of. Did anyone want the Metagon explained? Not necessarily. Playtesting made us realize that we'd invested a huge amount of screen time on the nuts and bolts of the birth of an inanimate object, when we should have been focusing on our star. We scrapped the origin story of the Metagon and went back to basics. When people think of the Medic, what do they think of. What's the iconic image? The medic uber-charging a heavy. The Pyro was the final character to receive their official trailer. The community waited with great anticipation as they expected the Pyro's identity to finally be revealed. The Pyro has no name or place of origin and speaks in indistinct grunts and yells. In their official description, even the gender is called into question, stating, he's a fearsome, inscrutable, on-fire Frankenstein of a man, if he even is a man. Though it is worth noting that the Pyro is voiced by a man. While the Pyro's update confirmed none of these things, it did confirm that they're delusional. Interestingly, Valve hit a segment of the Meet the Pyro video in a trailer for Portal 2 exactly two months before Meet the Pyro was published online. Did you know? Overwatch was put together from the remains of a scrapped project called Titan. Titan was an ambitious MMORPG being developed from 2007 to 2013 by Blizzard Entertainment. The game was cancelled after Blizzard felt it become too large and had lost its direction. Overwatch was developed with many of the same ideas, but was made on a much smaller scale to avoid the same issues. Evidence of this can be found in the very first hero designed for Overwatch, Tracer. According to principal designer Scott Mercer, the idea behind Tracer goes back to Titan, where one of the game's characters had Tracer's abilities. Assistant art director Arnold Sang told GameSpot that the company used Torbjorn to develop Overwatch's art style. The character himself was inspired by ideas from Blizzard's other titles like Warcraft. Interestingly, Torbjorn's ultimate ability is called Molten Core, which is also the name of one of World of Warcraft's most famous raids. And if the player kills four enemies during a single use of Molten Core, they get an achievement called Raid Wipe. 
Before ideas for the character Pharaoh were solidified, Blizzard knew that they wanted a hero that used a jetpack and a rocket launcher. Eventually, these ideas grew into a character called Rocket Dude, who eventually became Rocket Queen, and finally, Pharaoh. The name and concept behind Soldier 76 also existed before Overwatch began development. The idea originated in a concept for a comic book by Blizzard designer Chris Medsen. This version of Soldier 76 was a super soldier who had lost his memory and was presumed dead after a botched assassination attempt. He then wandered the world trying to atone for his actions as the United States descended into a second civil war. Overwatch's Soldier 76 has a similar story. He was the leader of Overwatch and presumed dead after the destruction of their headquarters. He now wanders the world attempting to track down those responsible for Overwatch's downfall. The gameplay concepts for Soldier 76 were created early on and came from Blizzard's desire to reflect modern military shooters. His auto-aim ultimate ability was inspired by aimbot cheats, popular with hackers in early first-person shooters. Widowmaker's ultimate ability, which allows her team to see the other team through walls, was similarly inspired by wall-hacking cheats. The heroes Genji and Hanzo were once the same character, a cyborg assassin simply named Hanzo. This character had the same face mask as Genji and carried both a bow and a sword. The concept was later split into the two different characters, with Hanzo retaining the bow and Genji taking the sword and the cyborg concept. Although Genji's international voice actor is Japanese and speaks the language, an entirely different Japanese voice actor was used in the Japanese version of Overwatch. In-universe, the South Korean hero Diva was a professional StarCraft II player, a nod to the popularity of StarCraft among Koreans. Several of her voice lines are references to popular jargon used by gamers online, and her default costume is covered with logos of companies similar to real-world professional gamers. Additionally, Lucio is a famous musician in the world of Overwatch. Blizzard even released two tracks from his debut album Synesthesia Auditiva in the real world before he was officially revealed as a playable character. At Gamescom 2015, Blizzard developers explained that Lucio was designed to represent the optimism in the world of Overwatch, and a direct response to Tracer's statement, The world could always use more heroes. The designs of Roadhog and Junkrat, as well as the in-universe state of Australia as a barren wasteland, may be references to the post-apocalyptic franchise Mad Max. Zarya's nationality and physical characteristics appear to be inspired by a Blizzard graphic artist named Tamara Baklishiva. Similarly, the hero Jesse McCree is based on a Blizzard game designer by the same name. McCree is portrayed by voice actor Matthew Mercer, though this isn't the first job he's had with Blizzard. He's played multiple characters in Hearthstone, Heroes of the Storm, Diablo 3, and World of Warcraft, including a character named Killrog Deadeye in the Warlords of Draenor expansion. McCree's ultimate ability in Overwatch, Deadeye, is a reference to this. Another famous character voiced by Mercer is Jotaro Kujo from the anime Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. Interestingly enough, McCree's Japanese voice actor also voiced Jotaro in the 1993 Jojo's Bizarre Adventure OVA and the prequel series Jojo's Bizarre Adventure Adventure. During the Overwatch closed beta, pictures of the female heroes Mercy and Symmetra could be found in the outhouses in the Route 66 map. They were later patched out of the game. Blizzard also faced criticism for one of Tracer's victory poses, which some fans felt was over-sexualized and out of character. The company later took the pose out of the game and replaced it with a similar pose reminiscent of a pinup by painter Alberto Vargas, which aligns more with Tracer's personality. Like most things on the internet, Overwatch has driven several fans to create pornography featuring the game's characters and locations. According to pornographic website Pornhub, Overwatch-related searches on their server increased by 817% on May 5th, 2016, the day Overwatch entered open beta. Though Blizzard hasn't officially commented on the subject, they may be actively trying to take some of that pornography down. Reddit user Spornum shared several accounts of his own creations and the works of others receiving DMCA takedown notices by digital securities company Erdetto. This was on video and image sites such as Pornhub and Tumblr. Several news outlets have speculated that Blizzard outsourced Erdetto to take down content that may use assets directly ripped from Overwatch. At one point, several cosplayers visited Blizzard's development studios dressed as heroes from Overwatch. Art director Bill Petrus asked them what they would like the studio to change about the characters to make them easier to cosplay. They simply requested that Blizzard add more pockets to the characters. In 2016, Blizzard hired several cosplayers to drive Overwatch-themed vehicles for the Uber cab service at PAX East in Boston. One of them, the Ford F-650 Supertruck driven by a Soldier 76 cosplayer, got into a traffic accident on the 
first day of the convention. The vehicle ran over another car outside the convention center, but fortunately, no one was injured. Blizzard paid tribute to one of their fans who passed away before Overwatch was released. In May of 2016, a 20-year-old student named Wu Hongyu attempted to stop a thief from stealing a classmate's motorcycle. Hongyu got onto his own bike to chase the thief and the two motorcycles collided. Unfortunately, Hongyu passed away from his injuries on May 23rd, 2016, just one day before Overwatch was released. He was awarded the Courageous Citizen Award from the government of Guangzhou, China, and Blizzard added Hongyu's name to a spacesuit on the red side of the Lijiang Tower map. His suit stands beneath the phrase, Heroes Never Die, a catchphrase used by the character Mercy. A Blizzard representative told Polygon, We added that in remembrance of a brave member of our community. Did you know? No Man's Sky was a concept that director Sean Murray conceived before he even had a studio. Murray began by convincing his future colleagues Grant Duncan, Ryan Doyle and David Ream to leave their day jobs. He did this by sending them images of skyscrapers calling the buildings massive games that are really functional and are kind of made to blueprints. Ream agreed to leave his job and follow Murray but said, only if we go on and make a skyscraper of our own. This ultimately led to No Man's Sky being developed under the name Project Skyscraper. Murray's efforts paid off and all four men left their day jobs at bigger game studios to form Hello Games. Unable to secure a publisher for their first game, Joe Danger, the team eventually gave up on their dreams and went out for a drink. This is where they came up with the idea of selling Murray's house to pay for Joe Danger's remaining costs. In an interview with Engadget, Murray explained, The way I looked at it was like, I'd bought that house because I'd worked at EA, so it was like blood money. Like a blood diamond. You gotta sell that, that's bad karma. Joe Danger would go on to sell extremely well, keeping the team alive. However, with a sequel and numerous ports, Murray felt the team was in danger of falling into the same repetitive slump as some AAA games. He ended up sequestering himself and a few teammates in a room to work on what would become Project Skyscraper. Murray drew inspiration from sci-fi novels such as Frank Herbert's Dune and the works of Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke and Robert A. Heinlein. The small crew bought several sci-fi books and ripped the covers off of them using the illustrations to coat their walls. No Man's Sky was also influenced by the BBC microgame Elite. Elite was a space simulation game with an emphasis on trade. The basic goal was to get as many credits as possible which the player could acquire through trading, bounty hunting, mining or even piracy. They could do this across eight mini galaxies, each containing 256 procedurally generated planets. No Man's Sky uses the same basic idea but with its own algorithm and just one galaxy. The game actually has over 18 quintillion procedurally generated explorable planets. There are so many that if the player only spent a second on each with no travel time, it'd take about 585 billion years to see them all. The game is so massive that the team had to create virtual probes to explore the universe for them. These probes explore planets to make sure the universe is consistent and that much of it as possible is up to their quality standards. The game also has its own fundamental rules and periodic table that dictate what's possible in its virtual universe. For example, the team changed the game's physics so that moons can orbit much closer to planets, making skies more interesting. In reality, moons orbiting that close to a planet would cause massive damage to both bodies through tidal forces. The team would also tweak individual elements themselves to create more beautiful worlds. As well as having moons orbit closer, artist Grant Duncan wanted some planets to have green skies. To achieve this, the team had to rework their periodic table so that atmospheres could have the right particles that would diffract light at a wavelength that appeared green. Everything in no Man's Sky's universe is interconnected, which means that this design process became a delicate balancing act. Murray told The Atlantic that something as simple as altering the color of a creature can cause the water level to rise. In 2013, game journalist Jeff Keighley stopped by the Hello Games office, not knowing what the team was working on. The team tried to hide the project from Keighley, but managed to see a glimpse of it anyway. Keighley said that if the team could create a trailer in time for his video game awards show, he'd give them a spot to present their project. Murray quickly threw a trailer together and sent it off for the show. Afterwards, he began sending the trailer to friends without context and asking them what they thought. Almost everyone believed the trailer wasn't ready for public viewing, and Murray asked to pull the trailer from the show. However, Keighley had fought hard to get them a spot on the show, and things went ahead as planned. The trailer was shown and it was very well received. While this was the world's first view of No Man's Sky, it was also the first time that the Joe Danger team had seen the game as well. The studio received a boost in morale, but this didn't last long. On Christmas Eve 2013, a flood decimated their office. In an interview with IGN, Murray admitted that they probably would have cancelled the game if it hadn't already been shown to the public. Murray commented on the team's situation, saying, We ended up in this tiny little room with ten of us crammed in there on makeshift desks. There were just computer parts everywhere. I remember saying to the team that, yes, this is crappy, but imagine what it's going to be like when we all walk out on stage at E3. 
2015 also proved to be an exciting year for the team. The Design Museum of London nominated No Man's Sky for Best Digital Design. During E3 of that year, Murray was bombarded with requests from prominent figures to view the game. The first of these requests came from the CEO of SpaceX, Elon Musk. Musk even gave the team a tour of his aerospace manufacturing and space transport company. The team also got to meet with Steven Spielberg and his team for the film Ready Player One. The final meeting request for E3 came from Kanye West. Kanye wanted to meet the team on the show floor and view their game, but they didn't actually have a spot on the floor. Due to not having any space and being in meetings with Musk and Spielberg, the team wasn't able to see Kanye. Hello Games later revealed a new trailer and announced that No Man's Sky would be released on June 21st, 2016. With only a month before its release, Kotaku reported that two different sources informed them that the game would be delayed. Murray confirmed the delay through the PlayStation blog, saying, We realized that some key moments needed some extra polish to bring them up to our standards. After a short delay, No Man's Sky will launch in North America on August 9th, in Europe August 10th, and in the UK August 12th. There's also been speculation that the cause for delay was due to legal issues that weren't public. Behind the scenes, Hello Games were dealing with a battle over the world Sky in their name. On June 17th, Murray tweeted, We finally settled with Sky. We can call our game No Man's Sky. Three years of secret stupid legal nonsense over. Sky TV, a European satellite television and broadband service provider, owns the trademark for the word Sky. Less than a month later, PC Gamer revealed that a Dutch company, Genicap, claimed to own rights to the super formula that No Man's Sky relies on to create procedurally generated planets. Genicap co-founder Jerome Sparrow said that his company didn't provide Hello Games with a license for the formula, but that they they wouldn't stop the game's launch. However, if the formula had been used, they would need to have a talk with Hello Games. Murray has stated since that the team did not use Genicap's formula. Did you know? Fortnite's original form was very different to the Battle Royale mode that popularized it. Fortnite was conceived during an internal game jam at Epic Games, pitched as a mix of the zombie survival multiplayer of Left 4 Dead and Minecraft. Players would spend the day gathering supplies and building a fortress, then spend the night defending it from zombie hordes. This version of Fortnite was announced at the Spike Video Game Awards in 2011 with a pre-rendered trailer, but Epic had only conceived of the idea three weeks prior. Epic used this reveal to gauge interest from publishers and was open to changing the direction of the game. Early into Fortnite's development, the upper management at Epic saw the growing potential of the games as a service model, hoping to emulate the success of Dota 2 and League of Legends. It was decided that Fortnite would be built around this idea, and Epic partnered with Chinese investment firm Tencent, who had experience with the model. Tencent would later purchase roughly 40% of Epic Games for $330 million in June of 2012. Several key developers at Epic, including lead designer Cliff Blazinski, were lukewarm towards this new business model and left the company after selling their shares to Tencent. A a functional prototype for Fortnite wasn't playable until 2014, three years after it was conceived and three years before the work on a battle royale mode began. The game now included aspects of tower defense games, an RPG-like progression system, and a Diablo-inspired loot mechanic. Its scope shifted frequently, with this iteration being a free-to-play co-op player versus environment game with a player versus player mode tacked on. Though Fortnite was featured in Game Informer in 2014, the game fell off the public radar as Epic appeared to shift their focus to their MOBA game, in reality, the developer was using Fortnite as a testing ground for the new Unreal Engine 4, which slowed development. On the long development cycle, Blazinski in-depthly explained, It took a while to come out, because making games is hard. Fortnite was eventually re-announced with a summer 2017 release date, but it was only launched in early access around this time as Epic felt the game still wasn't ready for a full release. Publishing the game this way was a challenge for Epic's marketing department. Though the period between an announcement and release of a AAA game is typically 12 to 18 months, Epic released Fortnite just seven weeks after it was re-announced. Additionally, Epic decided not to showcase the game at E3, fearing that because Fortnite had already been announced long before, it might get lost in other news or announcements. Instead, they sent out a press release, put out several trailers, and partnered with content creators on YouTube and Twitch to market the game. In early 2017, publisher Bluehole launched an early version of their game Player Unknown's Battlegrounds, nicknamed PUBG. Several executives at Epic took note, and thought they could make their own version of a battle royale game game within Fortnite. The company brought on the team behind the Unreal Tournament series to fulfill their plans for this PvP mode. The team would playfully include a few easter eggs referencing their past work on Unreal Tournament, such as posters depicting art and locations from the series. The Battle Royale mode was developed in a short amount of time, and Epic wanted to have it playable as soon as possible. To ensure a streamlined production, they went into development with a rule that banned members of the team from asking, what if? They knew they'd be able to add other ideas after the skeleton of the game was complete, and could save their additional 
ideas for later. Two weeks before the mode was set to roll out, Epic decided their Battle Royale mode should stand alone and release for free separately from the pay-to-play story campaign. Epic's marketing team worked 14 days straight to compensate for the sudden decision. Though the Battle Royale mode was a last-minute afterthought, it's ironically become the most successful part of Fortnite and has overtaken PUBG in monthly revenue and Twitch viewership. The success of Fortnite Battle Royale has caused Epic to shift more of its resources to the game, which led to the closure of their MOBA Paragon. They have since created a second Fortnite development team specifically for Battle Royale. Fortnite's art direction was quite different to previous Epic Games titles, though this wasn't always the case. Early versions of the game featured a more realistic, creepy art style. However, the team shifted towards a more colorful, cartoonish direction inspired by Pixar, Tim Burton, and Looney Tunes because they didn't want to create an in-game environment similar to PUBG's. They instead wanted players to enjoy the world, spend hours in it, and not feel sad afterwards. Cliff Blazinski explained the company's reasoning for the new stylized art and the game's lack of dude bros, saying, Everyone got so tired of this post-apocalyptic apocalyptic look that everything rubber-banded back to this bright cartoony look. You look at the Fortnite trailer and it looks like Anna and Elsa running around killing the zombies. Epic enabled cross-platform play between several versions of Fortnite, though play between the Xbox One and PlayStation 4 is not currently possible. According to Microsoft, this is because of Sony's internal policies. Interestingly, during September of 2017, cross-platform play between the Xbox One and PS4 was briefly enabled due to what Epic called a configuration error. The crossover was only noticed because of the naming conventions in the online systems of the two consoles. The Xbox Live service allows its users to include spaces in their gamer tags, while the PlayStation Network does not. The error was only noticed when players on PlayStation saw players with names that had spaces. Phil Spencer, the head of Microsoft's Xbox division, commented on the error on Twitter, saying that he would have liked to see Epic leave it on. The popularity of Fortnite has even drawn the attention of the U.S. educational system. Some schools, like Ohio's Ashland University, offer scholarships for top Fortnite players through a recently formed esports program. Additionally, many students play the mobile version of the game at school, enough that many institutions have reported problems with their in-school Wi-Fi networks due to the sheer volume of data used by the game. High school teacher Priscilla Cullen noted, My school allows phones during the lunch breaks, and instead of socializing, all they do is play Fortnite. Many schools have attempted to ban the game, but others have taken a more indirect approach to get their students to put down their phones. One teacher, identified as Mr. Hillman, wrote a post on the Fortnite subreddit asking that Epic tell players to pay attention in class. In response, Epic added the message Message, Mr. Hillman says stop playing in class to its rotation of loading screens. Others have used Fortnite as an incentive for their students. One middle school teacher in Chicago told her students that the class would hold a group discussion about the game if they could finish their schoolwork without a single interruption. She later told Vice, you could hear a pin drop in that room. Another teacher in Oregon offered to play Fortnite with a student struggling with home life problems if they could pass math that semester. This was mostly successful and the students' test scores improved noticeably. Fortnite's popularity has also led to some interesting situations not seen with other games. In May of 2018, Epic teamed up with Marvel Studios to include a new mode inspired by the film Avengers Infinity War. The mode allows players to claim the Infinity Gauntlet item and transform into Thanos. Humorously, Thanos can perform any of the game's emotes, all of which are frame-by-frame -frame recreations of pop culture references or memes. Several celebrities openly play Fortnite, including the rapper Drake. In March of 2018, Drake played the game with live streamer Ninja and broke Twitch's record for most-watched stream with over 6 635,000 viewers. This was nearly 250,000 more than the previous record holder. Drake has also offered to include lyrics about the game in an upcoming song if Epic includes an emote based on the music video for his song Hotline Bling. Did you also know that Super Smash Bros. actually didn't start out as a fighting game? Or that Pokemon in Chinese versions of Smash make very bizarre sounds? For a whole hour of Smash facts, click or tap the video on screen. How do you rate the new Pokemon game? I'm yet to play it. What do you think? Nice. Is it good to divert from the same f***ing game it's been for 30 years or what? Because <laughs> I reckon that can only be a positive. Let me know in the comments down below. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound. All with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.